The words that I would like to call your attention to this morning are in John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and I will be reading verses 1 through 26. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26, and uh, I would like to wish all of the mothers here a happy Mother's Day, and I hope you have a, a, a great time uh, today. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. He needed to go through Samaria. Then he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples were gone away to the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that said to you, Give to me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From where then will you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst and neither have to come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have spoken well by saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. In this what you have said, you have spoken truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say 
that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour has come when you shall neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you worship what you know not. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour comes and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, which is called the Christ. When He is come, He will tell us all things. Jesus said unto her, I that speak to you am He. Amen. Amen. Jesus, having set forth his teaching on spiritual regeneration in his discussion with Nicodemus, and John the Baptist, having set forth the supremacy of Christ in his discussion with his disciples, John, the gospel writer, now shows that Christ came not to condemn the world, but to save it. That is really the focus of John chapter 4, particularly Jesus' discussion with the Samaritan woman. Jesus came not to condemn, but to save. There are many similarities between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. But first, in John chapter 4, what we have is Christ's divine teaching. He teaches the woman of Samaria. Then he teaches his disciples. And then at the latter part of the, of the chapter, what we have is the divine work of Christ in his miracle, where he heals a man from Cana's son, Cana in Galilee, where he performs his second miracle. Yet if we turn back to look at John chapter 3 to see how the gospel writer develops his main thesis, we see similarities between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. The first is their misunderstanding. As Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about the birth from heaven, about his need to be born again, Nicodemus completely misunderstands Christ. He doesn't understand what Jesus is talking to him about. When he speaks to him about a birth of water and spirit, he is completely confused. The woman of Samaria also. Jesus is speaking to her of spiritual things. And she thinks he's speaking to her of physical realities, of water from a well. And to both Nicodemus and the woman at the well, Jesus is speaking to them about the work of the Spirit. 
He is speaking to them about the reality of the work of the Spirit. About how He powerfully influences and gives life and sanctifies and invigorates those whom He indwells. Yet there are some differences. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he comes to Jesus at night. Jesus comes to the woman at the well, and he comes to her in broad day. Nicodemus leaves and doesn't return. He pops up in the Gospel of John two other times. In chapter 7, verse 50, he meekly defends Jesus. And at the end of the Gospel, he is there to prepare the body of Jesus for burial. The woman leaves, and she leaves her bucket. And she goes into the city, and she becomes really the first apostle, quote, unquote, the first one sent from Christ. Look at John chapter 4, verse 29. John chapter 4, verse 29. She goes into the city and says, Come see a man which I told, which told me all things that I ever did. Is, is not this the Christ? And then a little further in chapter 4, verse 39. And many of Samaria, of the Samaritans of that city believed on him, on Jesus, for the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all that I ever did. Verse 41 now. And many more believed because of his own word and said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of your saying, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Very many similarities, yet many differences between the woman and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious leader, in many ways a righteous man. And the woman was a Samaritan, really viewed by the people of Israel as an idolater. And even in her own words, she says to Jesus, We have no dealings with each other. Why are you asking me for water? So you have these two characters, these two historical figures that interact with Jesus. Overlapping similarities in the conversation, yet great contrasts between the two. Yet in both, in both, this great principle is stressed. That Christ did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Nicodemus was a sinner in need of a savior, a religious sinner, a righteous sinner, yet he needed a savior. The woman at the well was an idolater, in essence, a pagan, in a cult, and she lived a life of immorality. Jesus came to save her also. But what this narrative also does is it demonstrates 
the principle that John the Baptist was trying to teach his disciples. He says to his disciples, He must increase, but I must decrease. He who is from above is above all. He who is of the earth is of the earth. And here Jesus, in teaching the woman and in performing the miracle at the end of the chapter, shows that he is greater than all. He says to the woman, after he asks for water and she kindly rebuffs him, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is speaking to you, you would have asked me for water and I would have given you living water. This also reinforces the point that John the Baptist made when he said that the Father has given Christ the Spirit beyond measure. Because what Christ is promising to give the woman, the gift that he's saying he's going to give to her is living water, which is an, an illustrative way of describing the work of the Holy Spirit. So you have all of these contrasts and similarities and demonstration. In essence, what you have is a progression in the gospel, a, a further revealing and clarifying of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And here we have it, of course, in John chapter 4, and we'll divide the chapter in this way. We have the divine purpose of Christ, and then we have the divine persuasion of Christ. The divine purpose and the divine persuasion. So, in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we read these words. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. And here, as we consider the divine purpose that Christ came into the world to save sinners, we see that in light of this divine purpose, there is always controversy. Now, specifically in the ministry of Christ, there was always controversy with the religious leaders, with religious hypocrites. Even when they turned him over and Pilate is judging the case, he knew that the Pharisees were jealous of him. So in Matthew 27, verse 18, it says it clearly that Pilate knew that they handed Christ over because of their jealousy. Now what we must note is that Christ didn't leave the area because he was afraid. He left, of course, because of the envy of the Pharisees and the arguing and the confrontation and the scuffle that would ensue. And it was not time for that yet. It's not sinful to flee persecution. What Christ does here is not cowardice, but it's an exercise of wisdom. Christ came into the world with a particular purpose, 
Jesus had a divine appointment. And that divine appointment, of course, was Calvary. It was not yet his time to get into the controversy with the Pharisees that would lead to his crucifixion. So in speaking with his own brothers, in John chapter 7, John chapter 7, verse 30, Jesus says this, or it says this, Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour has not yet come. And in chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 20, we read these words. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. The great hour, the hour of his crucifixion, had not yet come. So Christ refuses to enter into a scuffle with the Pharisees. Remember, Jesus' life is in the hand of the Father and in his own hand. He says in John 10, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. His hour had not yet come, so he departs from that region. He departs from the controversy. Because in the divine purpose, Calvary was ahead of him. And John makes a small aside here in verse 2. Many call this uh, sort of like an editorial note. Because the text says that Christ baptized, and remember this was what John the Baptist's disciples were saying. And he is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. But John, the gospel writer, puts in this little note. Though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. And, uh, of course, it's a short aside, so I'll make it an aside in the sermon. The point that the gospel writer is making here is that the importance of baptism comes from its author and not from the minister who baptizes. The reason why believers are baptized is not because of the persuasion of the pastor. The reason baptism is important isn't because of the person who baptized you. Being baptized in the Jordan River, which is something that a lot of Americans tend to do when they visit Israel, doesn't uh, contribute a hill of beans to your sanctification or your glorification. The reason why your baptism is of any value to you, and of course not to your salvation, because it doesn't cleanse sin, it doesn't sanctify the sinner, the reason why your baptism is of importance is because Christ called us to baptize. And therefore, when a minister baptizes, really is not your obedience to him or to the church, but you're displaying your obedience to Christ. And you are confessing that you've died to your sins and been raised to newness of life. But yet there is a value 
in knowing that when you submit yourself to baptism, your obedience is to the Lord Jesus. That is a beautiful and comforting thing to know. So if you're sitting in these cars and you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, I would call you to repent. Repent. Now, Christ then had a divine appointment. A divine appointment at Calvary. So he uh, avoids a scuffle with the Pharisees. Yet, there was another divine purpose at play, which is right in front of us in chapter 4. We don't have to wait till the end of the Gospel of John for the divine purpose to be complete because there are many others. And here, it's in verse 4. It's in verse 4. John writes, But he needed to go through Samaria. So he avoids this scuffle with the Pharisees because he had other business. Of course the cross, but then before the cross, there were sheep he came to gather. Travel through Samaria was not geographically necessary. He didn't have to do that. And as you study and, and uh, uh, in commentaries, dictionaries, encyclopedias, things of that sort, Generally, what the Jewish people would do to avoid the land of Samaria was they would travel east of the Jordan or they would go through the Transjordan and just go around the entire region. There wasn't a necessity for Christ to go, a, a, a geographical need uh, for Christ to go or travel plans that he had to go through that region. No, there was a divine purpose. The word used here, this word must, is used throughout the Gospel of John to describe the divine purpose or to give a divine purpose, a divine necessity. There was a divine necessity in Christ going through Samaria. And you see it in John chapter 10. Look at John chapter 10 and verse 6. The same word is used here. John chapter 10 and verse 6. It says, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them I must bring. Them I must bring. And they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. It's, it's as if Jesus is, is interpreting this conversation with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 10 in that one verse. Because the divine necessity here, remember that first one is the cross and the second is the salvation of sinners. The gathering in of men and women into one fold and they will hear Christ's voice. You know, generally when this chapter is preached, the way that it's preached is to a congregation and we're told this is how you should evangelize. Now, of course, Paul teaches us that we should imitate him. We should imitate Paul as Paul imitates Christ. So we should imitate Christ, of course. Yet a heart for unconverted people, a heart for the lost, is gained first and foremost 
by seeing Christ's own heart for the unbeliever. We must see it in Him first. He is the divine exemplar. And we ought to look to Him, to His person, to His work, and to His accomplishments as Christian people to motivate us to do the work He's called us to. Another thing that we have to remember too, that in this story, we're not Jesus. We're the Samaritan woman. And we need His grace. We're the ones in need of mercy, constantly. So Jesus had to go, because He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Next, if we turn back to uh, John chapter 4, most people, what they tend to do now when they preach this passage, or if you look at commentaries on this passage, you have all of this historical information, and they skip all of it. They, they, they sort of skip all of this information. Yet, there is here unfolded for us Considering the divine purpose that the historical and geographical history or the historical and geographical circumstances that are described for us are part of the divine purpose. The so I'm going to give it to you uh, short and then we'll look at it in detail. So the city, uh, so the region of Samaria exists. And there's a city in Samaria, and the name of that city is the city of Sychar, right? And in the city of Sychar, there is a well. And on that well is sitting Jesus, and coming to that well is a Samaritan woman that he came to save. Now, all of the history and, ge uh, and geography of Samaria is recorded in the Bible. We know who bought that area and gave it the name Samaria. Not only that, but we know the history of that city and why the woman would call Jacob her father when she's not ethnically Jewish. We also know where the well is and why the well was dug. And all of those historical circumstances, God used every single one he stuck that well on that plot of land so that this woman might be saved. Absolutely amazing. When you consider God, when you consider the divine purpose of God. So, in 1 Kings chapter 16, and uh, because of the wind, I, I can't turn in my Bible. But in 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 23 through 29, we have the history of this land. And King Omri purchases the land. I'm, I'm going to use my Bible app, which is going to slow me down a bit, but uh, bear with me. Look at 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 23. First Kings, 
16 and verse 23. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. Six years he reigned in Terzah. Okay, so the kingdoms have been divided. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Omri is a king of um, uh, of the uh, northern kingdom. And he's reigning in Terzah. But then he bought a hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver. Then he built on the hill and called the name of the city, which he built Samaria, after Shemer, who owned the hill. And Omri was an evil man. So, you have, uh, we know where the land comes from. Why did the people of Israel have any kind of relation to this land? Well, at this point in history, at least, the northern kingdom ruled from here. This is where the northern king of Israel ruled from, from this point forward. So, you have this little bit of history recorded for us in the Bible. Now, this land then has always known a great deal of sin and turmoil. Remember, it was the northern kingdom that was cast away and went into exile first. And it was the northern kingdom that perpetually lived in sin and rebellion. King Omri is an example of that. Now, in verse 5, the well was on the land that the patriarch Jacob had purchased from the Canaanites. So this is before the history of the kings. So this plot of land actually belonged to Jacob. Look at Genesis chapter 33. Genesis chapter 33 and verse 18. So Jacob returns from his period of enslavement to Laban. He meets his brother Esau, and now he is settling in. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. When he had come from Padanaram, and he pitched his tent before the city. And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elyoi Israel, the God of Israel. He called that piece of land, that parcel of land, this is the land of the God of Israel. Remember what the Samaritan woman says to Jesus? We think that you should worship on here, on this mountain. But the Jews say you should worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus says geography doesn't matter anymore. Uh, th this is not 
the, these verses are not the scraps. This is really the theology uh, of the Old Testament. All of it. See, it's not only people who are types and shadows or the sacrificial system, but the entire history of Israel is preparing for the coming of Christ. All of it points to Him. Now, this land, this Sychar, is this city of Shechem. Now, later, later, as Jacob is, is dying, he gifts this land to Joseph. He gives him the portion of land. And what he says about the land is interesting. He says that he took the land. This is in Genesis chapter 48, 22. And, and Jacob says to his son, he says, I'm going to give you this piece of land that I took with the sword and the bow. The reason why he says that, and I, he, um, of course it was purchased, but in that land, his daughter, Dinah, was raped. And his sons slaughtered all the Samaritans in that city. You see, uh, turmoil and sin is constantly related to this little plot of land. Later, he gives this land to his son. And this is where Joseph wanted to be buried. He says to the children of Israel, Hey, when you guys leave the land of Egypt, take my bones and bury it in the land that my father gave me. So uh, Joseph's place of burial is also in this city of Sychar, and you can visit the tomb of Joseph to this day. We know exactly where this well is. And this well rests on one of the largest... Um, um, one of the largest artesian wells in Samaria. So John is careful to record all of this history to show us that all of these things that happened to the patriarchs were leading up to the coming of Christ. He shows the historical reliability of all of Scripture, of course. But the most important thing is, is that all of these events are all anticipatory. They're all waiting for Christ to appear next to that well to speak to this woman. Next. Next. Look at verse 4. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore. So you have... Uh, Three, right? The cross, that's why the, there was a divine purpose of the cross. Therefore, he doesn't get into the scuffle with the Pharisees. The second divine purpose is he comes to gather sheep into his fold that are not of the nation of Israel. Therefore, he has to go. The third was the geographical and historical, uh, um, how did I write that? Circumstances, there you go the historical and geographical circumstances that, that are involved with Samaria and with Shechem and with the well and all of these things pointing us to the Savior of the world. 
And now fourth, look at, look at verse 6, excuse me, verse 6. Jesus, therefore, being, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A very interesting here. <clears throat> now, uh, think about this a little bit too, which is, this is absolutely tremendous. You have the, the actual setting is a well, right? Well, it's an artesian well, so it has living water. It's not just a cistern of, of uh, you know, that collects rainwater or anything like that. And what Jesus is going to do, he's going to talk to this woman at this well about a fountain and about water. And of course, this doctrine that he's going to teach her is about spiritual life. He's going to teach her about regeneration and the enlivening work of the Spirit. So all of this, of course, is folded into the context here. This is almost, uh, seems planned. And the divine purpose, of course, unfolds in seeing these things. Uh, verse 6 now focuses on something that is very important. And it is the humanity of Christ. You have a display here of Christ's humanity. So in the divine purpose, even the humanity of Christ is used in this particular instance so that he can interact with the woman and preach the gospel to her. Listen to how John states it. Again, I'll read the verse. Being wearied from his journey, depending on exactly how they traveled, Jesus would have just finished traveling by foot in the desert either 20 or 40 miles. He was hoofing it. So he was tired. He was weary. And sitting thus, sitting, sitting thus means sitting weary and tired. He was by that well absolutely exhausted. So you have the natural, all of the natural causes here. This sort of a, uh, relates to our Sunday school class on the absolute sovereignty of God. We have all of these natural causes, all of the historical and geographical circumstances that led to this meeting. But then you also have the voluntary causes where God sovereignly acts from a principle of free liberty, right? Of the will of man. God uses that even for his own sovereign purposes. What's the principle here? Jesus was tired. Right? He, he leaves. They're, going, they're, they're leaving. He has to go through Samaria. And he just so happens to be really exhausted. So he stops at this well. There are no mistakes. There are no mistakes. There are no uh, chance circumstances. All of this, even his cause of fatigue, was ordained by God. It was used by God so that he might preach the gospel to one woman. So again, the divine purpose, the divine purpose. Now, this teaches us, of course, that 
as the author to the book of Hebrews says, we have a high priest who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, of our own physical weaknesses. Yet the point of John is, of course, to almost amaze us with the absolute sovereignty of God in ordaining all of these circumstances and into working all of these things out for one single conversation. The Bible says that God or the angels, let's, let's, let's turn there. Well, I'll just, quote the, I'll just quote the text. There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels in heaven when one sinner is saved. And that is exactly what's happening here. And this woman's salvation, which, of course, it's not Nicodemus. You would think that maybe, the, you know, let's have the religious leader get saved. Many people are going to believe that more, you know, more people will believe the religious leader than will believe this woman who in essence is a harlot. Let's have the religious leader say, no, no, that's not the way that Christ works. That's not the way that God works. What God does is he saves a scandalous woman. And by means of this scandalous woman, an entire city is saved, comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ. As the woman of Samaria now draws near to Jesus, in John chapter 4, verse 7, he asks her, he asks her for a drink of water. He says, give me a drink. And we'll take a look at that discussion next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask, Lord, that uh, you would help us to see your sovereign hand working in all things, Lord. Help us to consider, Lord, your divine purpose. Always fixing our eyes upon the cross of Calvary and knowing that in history, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was the greatest event, Lord. This is why Christ came into the world, to, to accomplish your will. Yet, Lord, in doing this, He gathers a people, He gathers the church to Himself and for your glory by the power of the Spirit. We thank you so much, Lord, for your wisdom for the undescribable wisdom in the geographical and historical circumstances, not only that we see in the Bible, which we can give great glory for, and we have divine interpretation and, and you know, pointers to these things, Lord, but even the circumstances in our own life that we may not be a even able to uh, be able to explain, Lord, 
as we consider how you drew us and you drew others uh, to yourself, Lord God. And may we also, Lord, uh, fix our eyes upon the divine purpose in Christ's humanity, ultimately in his sufferings and death and in his powerful resurrection from the grave. Lord, we thank you for this day, and we ask that you would help us to fix our eyes on these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.